Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, listen now to the introduction to the scripture. Written somewhere between the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, the gospel according to John stands apart from the three other gospel accounts of Matthew, Luke, and Mark. In fact, if you ask most biblical scholars what is distinctive about John's gospel, most of the time they will answer everything. This is only a slight exaggeration. For while some of the basic story is being told, more than 90% of the material in John is without parallel in the other three gospels. John is unique in other ways. It concentrates the ministry of Jesus on the happenings in and around Jerusalem, while the other three gospels focus on events around Galilee in contrast to the short sayings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Johnning Jesus delivers long philosophical discourses. Finally, in John, Jesus talks mostly about himself. He talks about his identity as one who has come to reveal the Father and what it means to believe and abide in him. Loving and abiding in Jesus, salvation as abundant life, the presence and the function of the Holy Spirit, all are major themes in the gospel according to John. Our reading this morning comes to us from the second part of the gospel contained in chapters 13 through 21, which scholars call the book of glory. In this section, Jesus restricts his conversation to his disciples alone. Throughout chapters 15 and 16, you can almost feel the urgency in Jesus's voice as he provides his beloved disciples with the final set of teachings and prepares them for what is about to happen. Right here in the middle of this conversation, Jesus provides the disciples with only one commandment the interpretive key that reveals the essence of his life and teachings. Hear now the reading. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my father. This ends the reading. Though darkness should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control me. 
that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath laid down his life for my soul. Let's sing together. It is well with my we continue our sermon series here on well-being, I want to remind you once again, the fundamental premise of this series is that God cares as much about our bodies and our minds as God cares about our souls. This is an important distinction because for centuries Christians have focused almost exclusively on spiritual matters like the human soul, heaven and hell dogma and doctrine, salvation, and eternal life, often while neglecting very material things like flesh and blood, like real bodies, like mind and spirit, real physical earthly things like your very life and body. Likewise, we also know that our modern scientific medical understanding of wellness has focused so much on flesh and blood and body parts and we neglect the importance of mind and spirit. This is part of the experience we have in, 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 the, in the world today. Broken minds and aching spirits have a power over us and a power over our physical bodies that we often underestimate and barely comprehend. And yet the truth is, there are no bodies without souls. There are no bodies and souls. There are only embodied souls and ensouled bodies because it's all connected. Body and soul, mind and spirit, they are all wonderfully and beautifully entangled. This is a wonderful word, entanglement. It's a word that quantum physicists often use to describe the mysterious nature of the universe and how everything that we touch and see and experience in the natural world is actually weirdly connected. When you look at the world, what do you see? Well, chances are what you see are objects. Rocks, chairs, cars, couches, pizzas and cheeseburgers and chalupas and pianos and airplanes, sailboats, people amoebas, animals. Um, it all looks like matter to us. It's just a bunch of objects that, from our perspective, they seem to be rather unrelated and disconnected. And that's how often we see our bodies and our minds and souls too. Just individual unrelated parts. So that if we're physically sick, we figure we just treat the body. If we're not mentally or emotionally well, we just treat the mind. If we are spiritually empty, or as one great hymn talks about, the sin-sick soul, we just treat it spiritually. And this is how we think of wellness from our modern mechanistic worldview. We've been taught to see the world as just a bunch of objects, disconnected, 
parts, things. We've been taught then to see the world objectively, to measure it, to analyze it, to observe it objectively. This idea that we can somehow observe the world without bringing our subjectivity to it because we figure we are unaffected by it, independent, unrelated to it. And this modern assumption is that we can just diagnose and solve any particular problem or any breakdown in any system, including this body, uh, by isolating the parts. The world, we think, even our lives, it kind of works like an engine. If you just replace a pulley here or a cog over there, a spring over here, you get right back in business. Only we're discovering now that this really isn't how the world or our bodies work. We're beginning to see how interrelated or entangled it really is. I have this 20-year-old Volkswagen camper van. Uh, every time something goes wrong, it's a, it's a money pit. Uh, the water pump went bad. I took it to the mechanic, and uh, the mechanic looked it over. He called me later and said, look, the pump is only like $240. The problem is we can't just repair the pump. We have to also replace the uh, belt thingamajig and a uh, pulley uh, kebab and some electrical whatchamacallit that's connected to a special order doohickey thingamabob attached to a gizmo gibbons. He said it's going to be $1,840. <laughs> and I said, dag damn it, right? It's all related, in other words. Everything is related to everything. Look around, what you see are not objects or parts or things. The world is composed, it's composed of something different. And what we're told is the world is composed of matter. And what we're told is matter is composed of atoms, and so the fundamental unit of reality is atoms. But what we're now learning over the last hundred years is that atoms are actually composed of particles. Particles are actually composed of subatomic particles. Subatomic particles are composed of what? Energy. In fact, lots and lots and lots of energy. The physical world that is you, that is the seat that you are sitting on, the, the shoes on your feet, the ground underneath your feet, it's not just matter. It's not just stuff. It's actually energy. In all of the stuff of the universe, if you were to cook it all down, all the real matter of the universe, you could fit it all into the size of something that approximates a sugar cube. Because what is really in all of the world is not matter, but space. You and me, we're 99.9% Space, empty space. So next time somebody calls you an airhead, they're, they're kind of right. The whole world, it's 99.9% .9 empty space and what's in that space is energy, what quantum physicists call strings, which are little light waves of energy. And they're not just hanging out, they're actually, they're moving and grooving. They're vibing, they're, they're vibrating at a frequency in all living things, in every, even inanimate things. 
And so when we look at the world, what we see is from a three-dimensional uh, three perspective. But those atoms, when they all start to vibrate at a similar frequency, they make things that we see as chairs or rocks or people. But at the heart of it is energy. And I know you're wondering, where's this going? Isn't this a sermon? Physicists call these little strings of energy quarks. These quarks are the most basic unit of all reality. And quarks, they're super funky. They behave weirdly under a high-powered microscope. Some of you know this much better than I do. Some quarks, they exist and then they just disappear for no apparent reason. And some disappear the instant you observe them. That's weird. And what that says is our observing has an impact on the world. We can't look at anything objectively. Some quarks, they disappear over here, and then they reappear over there, often without even traveling the distance between them. Wait, what? But there's one other most amazing mystery of all, and this is the whole point of what I'm trying to do for you today. Quarks these most basic units of our reality in the universe are wonderfully social. They're relational. Quarks cannot exist without quarks. One quark needs at least another quark to exist. And what's really cool is when you put a bunch of quarks together, what you get is one funky, quirky, quirky party like the church, super quirky, quirky. <laughs> and you're wondering why a sermon is turned into a science presentation. It's this very reason. Because quarks tell us that at the very heart of the universe, at the heart of reality is baked into the system this inherent, irrefutable, inexplicable longing, impulse for relationship. Years ago, uh, some astrophysicists not far from here in Boulder, they built a thingamajig or a whatchamacallit, I don't know, but they put two quarks inside it. And these quarks had been complete strangers, so to speak, before they were introduced. But wow, they got them together and they really hit it off. Instant connection, you could say it was a really good, a good vibe uh, that they shared. Their electrical charge synced up they began humming at the same exact frequency. And so using their doohickey thingamabob simulator, these physicists then separated those two quarks. They kept one here and they sent one around the universe to the opposite end of the universe. It would be like you and your partner or your friend are together and someday somebody says, you stay here and the other one goes to the other end of the universe as far away from you as possible. That's what they did in their little doohickey thing. They separated these two quarks and they changed the frequency then of the one quark that stayed here. Something amazing happened. Right when they changed the frequency of the quark here, the other one on the other end of the universe changed simultaneously to match the frequency of the one that was here. And they call that entanglement. 
And why is this important? Because it suggests that relationships, every relationship we have in this world, it transcends time and space. Our relationships exist whether the distance between us is measured in millimeters or light years. Whether the time that separates us is measured in seconds or in millions of years. The foundation of our universe, it's not matter at all. It's relationships. Everything is entangled, you, me, your body, mind, and soul, all of us together, everything that is out there, entangled. You can't break it into parts because it's all relationship. It's all in relationships. It is all a web of relationships held together by one divine relation we call God. We can't live without relationships and we know this already. The stronger our relationships, the healthier and more alive we are, the more abundant life we live. Carl Jung said that next to mental and physical health, the second most essential factor in human happiness is good and intimate relationships. And the key words there are good and intimate. I read a study recently about a group of 20 men. They met together in a house um, in Oakland, California. They're in their 30s and 40s. They're fathers. And they got these dads together and they asked them um, one question. Um, do you have, do you have re- how many of you have real, real close, intimate friends? How many of you have close confidence uh, with whom you can have conversations, honest conversations about your life and what you're going through, good and bad? And two of those 20 raised their hands. The average American has less than one close confidant in their lives. And the number one reason people today seek out counseling is loneliness. In our story today from John's Gospel, you heard read, Jesus is saying farewell to his closest friends. And John, here in chapter 15, he is, he's saying goodbye. It's one last teaching, final words as we would call them. Have you ever been at the bedside of somebody who is saying goodbye for the very last time? If you have, you know the intimacy of that moment and the urgency of it. And they might say to you something like, look, I, I don't have much time left and I want you to know this one thing. Never, ever forget this one thing I'm going to tell you now. And you lean in and you, you listen deeply because whatever they say to you is for them the honest to God truth. Never forget this. And Jesus, on the night before he dies, gathers his best friends together. And he says, there's not much time. I want you to hear this one thing. Promise me you'll never forget this one thing. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. And no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's close friends. At the surface of it, you might say, well, that makes sense. Um, Jesus is just saying, hey, guys, get along. Uh, I'm leaving. Would you get along without me? Remember and call each other on birthdays. Uh, Share your stuff with each other. Support one another. But that's not really the kind of love Jesus is talking about. Years ago, I attended an interfaith mayor's breakfast where all these 
pastors and leaders of different faith denominations got together in the community. We sat at tables and we ate and talked, and one of the leaders at my table suggested that in all the world's major religions, what unites them all together is what we as Christians call the golden rule. Basically, treat others the way you would want to be treated. And she suggested that in the end, this is what all religions are ultimately about. The aim of religion is that we would treat each other the way we want to be treated. Well, she was right about one thing. The the golden rule really is the oldest rule in the book. You find it in the Code of Hammurabi, somewhere around 1755 BCE. It's that old. But for Jesus, the golden rule is actually just the bare minimum. It's, It's the least that God can expect of us, to treat each other the way we'd want to be treated. And you know what? Human civilization would be much better if we just started there. But then Jesus gives us this new command. He transcends even that expectation by saying, love one another not as you would want to be loved, but as I have loved you. And that's a different love, a higher love. And the golden rule may unite us in our religious experiences together. But this rule is what makes Christians distinct. You call it the titanium rule because it's the strongest, most enduring kind of love that we can practice in the world. Now, Jesus gave this commandment specifically to his closest friends. I think there's a reason he didn't give it to the whole mass of people following him. Because it's hard to live out. And Jesus says to his closest friends, this is upper division work, high risk of failure. Why don't you all start it, get this thing going, we'll see how it goes from there. The world operates from a golden rule sort of perspective. And Jesus expects more of you. What he says to you is, you see how I love, go and do likewise. What's the difference between loving others the way you want to be loved and loving the way Jesus loved? Well, the golden rule measures love's impact by how it makes us feel mostly. It's, it's reciprocity kind of love. It, it, it gives with the expectation that there's a possibility of getting something in return, which makes love a commodity. And we trade it like thingamajigs and doodads, parts. I'll do this for you, not so much because it's good for you, but because in giving it to you, it could be good for me. And maybe you know how this works. You do a favor for a friend. You go out of your way, out of your way. It's something you don't want to do. But you do it because you love your friend. And not that a thank you is necessary, but would be kind of nice. A little thank you, but you wait and it never comes. And the next time you actually talk to your friend, she says she needs another favor. And you, well, then she says, I I know I can do this because I can always count on you. But then you start to wonder if you are in her shoes, would she return the favor? And then one day you are in her shoes and she doesn't return the favor. And suddenly you start to wonder, am I just making deposits and never getting a withdrawal? Eventually, it starts to feel like a bankrupt relationship. That's golden rule kind of love. You're just exchanging doohickeys for thangamabobs, parts for parts. When love is not returned, those quarks go to the ends of the earth and stretch our limits, and they just break and stop 
vibrating together. And Jesus says there's a better way to love here. C.S. Lewis, great writer, he says there, there are three kinds of love that we are familiar with in the Greek, eros, philia, and agape. He says, in the end, they all come down to one important distinction, the difference between what he called need love and gift love. And need love is this kind of love that is born of emptiness. It's acquisitive in nature. It seeks value from others to bring it back to itself. If you were to draw a diagram of it, it would be more like a circle. It goes out to get, and then it comes back to fill your own emptiness. Need love is selfish, mostly. It's grasping. Um, Lewis says many times when, when we say to other people, I love you, what we really mean is, I need you, or I want what you have. But he said there's another kind of love that's utterly different. He called it gift love. And gift love is not born of emptiness, but abundance. And the goal of gift love is not to extract value from others, but to add or enhance the other's experience. If you were to diagram that, it would look more like an arc that just goes out. It never comes back. It doesn't need to. It moves to increase rather than diminish the other. It's like a bountiful well that overflows. Gift love. What he says is, oftentimes, when we love, we have to remember that we are born, we are born in the image of God's gift love. How do we do this? Just two very quick suggestions. If we want to love the way Jesus loved, the ways that, that lay down our life for others, we can begin to love and see love as an act of solidarity. An act of solidarity that says, I'm with you, always. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, some of his last words in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I can go to the other end of the universe in time and space and still be connected to you. A good friend and mentor of mine who died a few years back, Methodist pastor, retired, moved to a new community where he and his wife began to settle in, and then his wife had a stroke, she died. And uh, this little faith community they were attending, he continued to go there, but he couldn't go for a while. They used to go to the nine o'clock service. He decided he would try, when he finally went back to church, he would go to the 11 o'clock service to try to mix things up. And he thought that when he would go there, he would meet some people who would know and love him. And yet, as pastors are inclined to do, he went to that service like 45 minutes early, sat down like two or three rows from the front, and no one ever came and sat with him. The service began, he felt so lonely so alone. And as the opening hymn began, he said, there was this couple, it was a, it was, he said it was a miracle. He said this couple during the opening hymn came all the way down from the back and slid into the pew and sat next to him. They said that was a miracle. I mean, Methodist, they left their pew and came all the way to the front? That's a miracle. Love as solidarity. 
Anybody ever shown up on your doorstep with a casserole when you're grieving or sick? Gift love. It's kind of love that doesn't need anything back. And the giver understands one thing, that there is some strange intangible gift that's received in that. Your heart is enlarged when you give. The second way to give the way Jesus gives and to love the Jesus way is to love with steadfastness. The Hebrew Scriptures describes God as the one of steadfast love, uh, never-ending, everlasting, faithful, and tenacious kind of love. The kind of love that says, um, you're really hard, but I'm going to stick with you. As difficult as it can be, I'll walk with you. Steadfast love. When Jesus gave this teaching, his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples were there, one of whom would deny him, the other would betray him, the rest of those 10 disciples would abandon him, and yet Jesus even before it happened, said, I will love you to the end, knowing what would come. Steadfast love. Donald Miller, the great writer, he, um, he told a story in one of his books about Uncle Art, the strapping yet tender man who ran a camp somewhere that worked to rehabilitate young men who had gotten in trouble. And these men would come kicking and screaming, these young guys, and he was trying to teach them job skills and how to get along. They would always run away, and he would go back and get them and bring them back. And he said, when it was finally time for these young men to leave the camp, when their probation was over, most of them cried and begged to stay. The takeaways for today Everything that ever was, everything that is, and everything that ever will be is wildly, weirdly entangled in relationship. Jesus loves with a solidarity that says, I'm with you. And Jesus loves with a steadfastness that says, I'll love you to the end. And we go and do likewise.
Choir and orchestra, it is good to have you back. We are so blessed by your gift of music today, and we look forward to the season ahead. Thank you, Mark's willing. I want to invite you to rise if you're able. We're going to join in our closing hymn and, uh, I should say, our benediction, which we'll do in unison and our closing hymn. On your way out today, be sure to head straight out to our Come and See event. There's some cool things that are going, quirky things that are going on out there. <laughs> Uh, including what I hear is a uh, special helicopter landing, like not kidding, like not a drone, but a real helicopter. And uh, you get to uh, check that out. And I'll be on the uh, climbing wall and I'll race some of those kids up to the top of that. Let's join together in our benediction. 
We go now to bless the world, to sustain the weary with a word of hope, to draw neighbors and strangers into the refuge of grace, to bear the love of Christ in every place at all times for all God's people. sing this together. You can hold my hand when you need to let go. I can be a mountain when you feel valley low. I can be a street light showing you the way home. If you can hold my hand when you need to let go. I want a house. With a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone. Let us take on the world while we still are able and bring us back together when the day is done. If we want a garden, we're gonna have to sow the seed Plant a little happiness Let the roots run deep If it's love that we give Then it's love that we reap If we want a garden We're gonna have to sow the seed I want a house with a crowd By the fire for everyone. Let us take on the world while we still are able and bring us back together when the day is done. The door is always open, your pictures on my wall. Everyone's a little broken. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.